Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending October 20th, 2023. This week, Netflix wows Wall Street. We'll tell you why this is bad news. I'm Kim Hollis, who reads everything David types, and I really do. I like that we're on week three of this bit now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer, also raising his prices. Uh, I couldn't tell you to what, but I know I just made Wall Street very happy. <laughs> <laughs> or unhappy. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride and streaming media analyst. And apparently this space is intentionally left blank. You know what you did, Hollis. You know what you did. <laughs> And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's not ready to let go of summer. I will close the window when it starts snowing. <laughs> In our deep dive this week, Netflix proved once again that they're the king of streaming and everyone else is just trying to catch up. Yeah, Netflix is a bit like Patrick Mahomes, clearly the best, but still trying hard to get everyone's approval. Last week, they announced they'd be building Netflix House, which they described as permanent fan destinations, but what everybody else recognizes as Netflix stores, where you can go get merch based on Netflix properties. They also announced a Squid Game experience leading up to the debut of their upcoming Squid Game reality show. So if you've ever felt you missed out on the murderous experience of participating in your very own squid game well here's your chance so what i'm hearing is netflix has just legalized murder do i have that right was the earnings report that good it really does feel like netflix <laughs> can get away with anything yes and really that was just a start as this week started with an announcement that netflix would be live streaming their very first sporting event is it the nfl did they get the nba rights no they've launched their own golf tournament in las vegas featuring celebrity golfers and formula one drivers netflix also launched a beta of their cloud gaming platform in the united states with a major feature story in the wall street journal and the headline wait Netflix does gaming now? I think the headline should be, Netflix really wants to do gaming now, but it hasn't worked out yet. <laughs> and that was all just the pre-show as Netflix announced their quarterly earnings this week and the numbers were eye-watering. Netflix announced their single biggest subscriber growth since the pandemic. The streamer added a staggering 8.8 million new subscribers in the quarter, beating analysts' expectations of 6.2 million suggesting that their crackdown on password sharing, or at least the threat of it, was paying off. Wall Street loved the news, with Netflix's stock surging 12% overnight. The news that Netflix would be raising their prices, as we'd expected, was also welcomed by Wall Street. Beginning Wednesday, Netflix said its basic and premium plans would go up to $11.99 and $22.99 respectively, up from $9.99 and $19.99, while Netflix's $6.99 ad-supported tier would remain the same. Well, that's strange. It's almost like they're encouraging people to be on the ad tier instead of on one that doesn't include commercials. Who could have possibly seen that coming? <laughs> Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but I did want to point out that while Netflix had some really good subscriber numbers this quarter, there may be some shadiness going on with these numbers. As Netflix only reported revenue of $8.69 I wouldn't necessarily say that's only, except that consensus was that they were going to make $8.76 in the quarter. How do you have more subscribers, 2 million more subscribers than expected, and yet report less revenue than you're expecting? 
I'm not calling shenanigans exactly, but I'm surprised no one really pushed Netflix on this disparity during the earnings call. And very few people are asking questions about it even now. Yeah, Roland and I were talking about this the other night and it doesn't add up. I mean, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it yet. Um, something's not right under the hood of the car is what I would say here because he's absolutely right. The the two numbers should align. That didn't happen at all. So we're kind of looking around going, whose math is wrong and whose math is right? Is is it just that simple, Roel? I imagine there's a lot of different ways to calculate this. The revenue growth is entirely dependent on where those subscribers are coming from, how much they're paying for their subscription prices, and also how much money they're making off other earnings. You'll remember, of course, that for the longest time, Netflix only had one revenue avenue, and that was subscriptions. Now they have two because they've opened the door to advertising revenue. So is it that they're not making as much money as they expected through advertising? Because that's the only disparity that could happen. If you make, let's say, $10 per subscriber and you have 100 subscribers, you should expect that you're going to make $1,000, 10 times 100. And yet that math didn't come out right. Something definitely went sideways here. The revenue dipped somewhere and it may well be that the revenue dipped in terms of advertising. Yeah, I think that we've got a combination of things here. And the first one is there's just no disputing the fact that the subscriber growth is the same issue Disney Plus has faced where it is coming from lower ARPU regions. As a reminder, ARPU is average revenue per user. So they're adding subscribers, but they're not adding the subscribers who pay more. And we've also got a mix of people who might have added packages, but they added the cheapest packages. And we also probably had some instances of some people like my brother, who actually downgraded his package on the news of the price increase. And he's somebody with plenty of disposable income. It's not like it was a financial concession or anything. It was just they kind of made him mad. And he said, you know what? I don't need all this and went down. I think that we did have some of this, which isn't quite the same as churn. It's not like people are leaving the service because, you know, if they were, we'd see that in subscriber numbers, but they might be deciding to pay less for Netflix based on the recent decision-making. And that's one of the things Wall Street is looking for. And it's also what Netflix is looking for is the pressure point where customers will go, nope, that's it. Won't pay anymore. I think that we might have just found that boundary. Well, we do have to say that one definite low point in their earnings call for Netflix was the their languishing ad tier, which is why they, as you pointed out, David, raised the price on their traditional ad-free tiers, but not on their ad-supported tier. Netflix knows that revenue growth will come from selling ads, but they're just not seeing the growth they wanted. In fact, they fired the executive in charge of ad sales a couple of weeks ago, evidently in anticipation of this earnings call. But it sure looks like subscribers remain committed to watching streaming without ads, at least at Netflix, regardless of what the price is. And if that's going to be the case, then Netflix is going to be sure to make you pay for that privilege. And yet, even with all the Netflix news, Disney and ESPN found some room to make waves as well. David, what did we learn? Yeah, so this is a real thing that happened. Kim and I were driving to a restaurant the other night, and I'm just flipping through some stuff, and all of a sudden I realized Disney has filed an 8K. When you follow this stuff for a living, that's basically like, you know, bells and whistles, alarm sirens going off, where you're just like, wait, wh what just happened? And it turned out that what Disney had done was something that actually promised a little while ago. But specifically in this instance, they have differentiated their various products. And the specific reason they did that was they wanted to clarify in their linear network 
networks how much ESPN is actually earning in terms of revenue. And in the process, they also went ahead and basically revealed what's happening with Star India as well. And that data kind of, I wouldn't say it surprised me, but it kind of reinforced some things we thought, which is that year over year, Disney's revenue isn't down. As a matter of fact, there's a chance it's going to be up for the fiscal year. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. But their profit is actually down 20% year over year. And that's because they're having to pay more in rights. And they're also earning less in carriage fees because of what's happening with all of the cord cutting, which is just exploding the last 18 months or so. And so what's happening is ESPN is still very, very lucrative, but it's not as lucrative as it had been a few years ago. And Disney is currently looking for partners. And Roel, who would you expect to be the partners Disney is looking for? Because I thought this was the interesting part of the conversation. Given every report we've heard, it looks like Disney's looking for more than one partner. And really right now, the leaders would probably be companies like Apple who might get an opportunity to then add Disney content or at least ESPN content to the Apple TV Plus streaming service or or maybe and Verizon as a mobile provider who would then be able to offer ESPN content to their mobile users. Disney's looking for any opportunity and apparently right now Disney CEO Bob Iger is saying he's open to all offers. He's willing to hear all proposals. Whoever it is, it's going to be somebody with deep pockets and a reason to bring ESPN ESPN on board to their offerings. So it would have to be some kind of mobile or streaming service that wants to add ESPN to their package, which arguably could also mean someone like Comcast or Charter if they think they can swing it. And that's all exactly right. It really is. What we have just learned is basically Disney has gone ahead and made an official filing. They have told the SEC, they have told potential investors, this is how much we're actually making with all these things. And what we learned is ESPN is still quite profitable. Star India, which they're also trying to sell, lost more than $400 million last year. In other words, it cut into the profits of ESPN because at this point, Star India is costing Disney more to run than it actually earns. And so if Disney turns around and sells Star India, this report hurt them. Conversely, if Disney turns around and sells a piece of ESPN, which appears to be the play, they have just shown people you don't need to worry. There is still a lot of potential here. Disney is saying they own 80% of ESPN. They would like to sell 10% of it to a digital entity. We're talking about someone like Amazon, Apple, a company that has lots and lots of ways to finance something. A company that has a trillion dollar valuation and will not sweat the price of sports rights renewals right now. Disney wants a well-funded partner for that. And then they want someone who is actually in the smartphone space. Like you said, T-Mobile, Verizon, somebody who can actually provide Disney with a lot of immediate customers because ESPN is down. At one point in its heyday, ESPN had 90 plus million subscribers, which means they were marketing to 90 plus million people. It was great. Right now, out of the major cell phone vendors, Disney could actually boost up to 113 to 143, possibly even 200 million people if it gets the right smartphone company to invest. So you can kind of see the plan here. But for that to happen, Disney had to come out and do this filing. And Roel, we were really confused about the timing of the filing, weren't we? Yeah, the timing ultimately boiled down to a question of why are they doing this now? This did not happen in a vacuum. Disney does not make this filing idly out of no reason. They do this as a 
step in a process. Disney has made it clear at this point, they have made it formal at this point, that they are looking to sell a portion of ESPN. And by declaring to the government the value of ESPN, they can now move on to the next step of actually accepting serious bids. Presumably, now that Disney has made this filing, the offers are going to start coming in and Disney is going to have to make a decision on those offers sooner rather than later, because if they take too long, they're going to have to make another filing. So watch for things to start moving rapidly real soon. Right. Disney could have just gone ahead and waited. You have to realize they have an earnings report the first week of November. So it's not like they had to do this right now. They went ahead and did it as if something were in progress at the moment. And they wanted to just go ahead and get out in front of it and say, this is what you should actually know about this. Here are the papers and we are guaranteeing it to be true in front of the American government. So it really was fascinating timing in that regard. And the other thing we want to say, I don't necessarily agree with the number but there's somebody at Bloomberg who always strikes me as just like way, way, way too conservative with this stuff. But they use this information to calculate the value of ESPN currently as $22 billion. Disney does not own all 100% of that. Disney's share would be worth about $17.6 billion. If they are planning to sell 10% of ESPN to one of those two places or both, we're talking about pieces of the pie that would be worth 1.7, 1.8 billion each, which means we could be talking about a maximum of 3.5 billion that Disney gets for this. And then with Star India at this point, we just don't even know what it's worth since it is a money losing venture, but it is a money losing venture that also just had the most concurrent subscribers ever for a streaming service. At one point, there were 35 million people watching at the same instant of a cricket match between Pakistan and India. So it's something that has value, but deciding what that value is, oof, I cannot do it. All right, Tim, let's talk about the box office a little bit. Yeah, after we were talking about it last weekend, Taylor Swift took over movie theaters, but not to the extent we were like kind of expecting based on everything we thought we knew beforehand, where it came out with a, what turned out to be a 92.8 million weekend, which David pretty much had nailed it, that there was a distinct possibility it would come in under 100 million, even though like initial estimates weren't as high as 130. But yeah, it just this was an event that most of the Swifties saw for the first time on, on Friday, and then it, it trailed off over the weekend. And I was actually completely unaware until I looked today, because I, I had a pretty crazy week, that it did not play at all during the week, except for then, then they had there were some Thursday night showings and then back on Friday. So I guess, you know, you don't really, they weren't expecting the Swifties to show up on school nights or something. Came in with another 10.4 million on Friday, which is a huge 72% drop from last Friday. So now it's at 109 million. It's hard to call this bad, but we feel like we were expecting more. Yes. And just clarifying what we mean by that, there were reports that there were already 130 to 135 million in pre-sales. After Sunday's box office, it might not be at 130 million. Maybe it will. It'll be close. I, I think it's going to be in the 120 somewhere. And so mm -hmm. we're kind of looking around going, well, who got that right? And, you know, why did they miss it? Because it's not just a bad miss. It's an important miss because, you know, movie theaters needed this. So it might not seem like a big deal. But Tim, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth if I say we were expecting a lot more than 30 million in week two, weren't we? Yeah, I think 30 million sounds sounds right for the weekend. I mean, I know people are going going to see it multiple times. Maybe there are people who were staying away expecting movie theaters to just be overwhelmed opening weekend. But yeah, especially like I said, with what we knew from pre-sales, you have to actually redeem the ticket for it to count as box office Taylor Swift fans. Just just want to point that out. 
And I'm much closer than expected, especially considering what we thought the Ares tour was going to do. New and second for Friday is Martin Scorsese's latest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, with 9.4 million, which is pretty outstanding for something that pushes like, what, three hours? I mean, obviously it has the pedigree with, you know, being Scorsese's latest film. And, you know, he, he always gets amazing performances from Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. And this is a top contender for the award season. This is probably the, the biggest film so far to date that's going to contend for Oscars. And the interesting thing here is, of course, this is at some indeterminate point in time, maybe when Apple realizes it's run its course in theaters, which could be a couple of weeks, it could be a, a couple of months, it'll show up on Apple TV+. And actually, they're not distributing it either. It's a paramount distribution in theaters, but then it's Apple's when they put it on streaming. I find that interesting. I thought they were going to actually release it themselves, but no, they're partnering with Paramount to put it in theaters. Yeah, Apple likes to throw money at projects, but they tend to not necessarily produce the content themselves. So for their theatrical releases, be it Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon or the upcoming Napoleon movie from Ridley Scott, they partner with a studio to release it theatrically beforehand. It's how they manage to get the top talent like Scorsese or Ridley Scott to come on board and agree to have their content come to their streaming platform. Well, I definitely expect them to have their second movie when this finally does hit streaming on the movies chart. I mean, we thought the last time and with an Academy Award winning movie and it didn't really happen. So they are really, really hard to predict with this stuff. I do think that you've touched on what matters the most to this story, which is at the end of the day, this film's runtime means that the Saturday number should be at least as good as the Friday, if not Mm. better. So it's going to be a surprisingly close outcome this weekend, which I don't think any of us really would have expected. I mean, no way Dean Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has saved movie theaters. That is not hyperbolic. You've got Mm -hmm. three heroes this year with Oppenheimer, with Barbie, and with this. I mean, if not for that, this would be one of the worst box office years. Oh, absolutely. Movie theaters theaters would be be done. Yes. There was misreporting on this, and that always annoys me because we don't need the hyperbole. We really just need the facts. But there's some people who just want to say the bigger number to make it sound more outlandish, get even more headlines. So this was clickbaity to a certain extent, and I'm annoyed by that. The Scorsese part this exceeds every reasonable expectation. It really does, in my opinion. Yeah, two interesting things. As I said, the runtime, it's 206 minutes, which, my God. And also, though it's largely funded by Apple, reported budget of $200 million. So they will absolutely not make that back in theaters, but they don't care. They have money to burn. They want viewers on Apple TV Plus when this eventually reaches streaming, and I believe they'll get them. This isn't something, say, like, you know, Coda, where it didn't star anyone <laughs> well-known, which we never saw, but I think this will absolutely show up on the ratings once it reaches streaming. I think so, too. And it's where I will choose to watch it because I don't want to sit in a movie theater for that long. All right. Let's talk about the streaming ratings. I suppose we have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, September 18th to Sunday, September 24th, 2023. Our top show, still Virgin River, 52 episodes, 1.2 billion minutes. No surprise for Quietly, one of Netflix's biggest shows. Sure, you've got your Squid Game, you've got Wednesday, but this is right up there. And we'll start to see it slide down the chart, but then pop up again in maybe about a month's time because they are adding those two other holiday episodes. New in second, uh, or returning in second, actually, Sex Education, also from Netflix, uh, 32 episodes, 634 million minutes viewed. The fourth season of this arrived on September 21st. That's a lot of education. Finally wrapping up the series, which I think was a slow burn to begin with, but it's finishing strong. Yeah, this is a British series, but basically considered a Netflix original. We've actually seen it before when we saw the third season way back in 2021. 
up to third is Ahsoka, six episodes, 570 million minutes. So, you know, creeping up uh, in terms of minutes viewed as it adds content. And we are two weeks away from the season finale. I believe it's eight episodes. So I'm curious to see what it does here. I do think it benefits from just being a direct spinoff to The Mandalorian, their biggest show. Returning, unfortunately, in fourth is Murtaugh Murders, A Southern Scandal, 563 million minutes for six episodes. The second season arrived on September 20th, three more episodes after it originally premiered in February with its first three. This is a well-known murder case. Prime Video's Wheel of Time is in fifth, 531 million minutes, 14 episodes. Been hanging around for its second season. Very expensive for Prime Video, probably not pulling in the viewers, but they're, they've are they already committed to a third season, so that's going to happen. Who's Only Murders in the Building, 28 episodes, 489 million minutes. Also two more episodes to go for its third season. I hopefully will have the time soon to continue to to catch up. I worked way too many hours this week than, than would be considered healthy, but I'm looking forward to continuing it. Uh, Netflix is One Piece in seventh, 479 million minutes for eight episodes. Dear Child, eighth, 431 million minutes, six episodes. That's been there for a few weeks now. Love is Blind returns, of course, as it adds finale of its latest season, 423 million minutes for 63 total episodes. And still hanging around for another week is Apple TV Plus's Morning Show, 422 million minutes, 23 total episodes. Movie still led by Elemental, uh, another 1.3 billion minutes. So yeah, excellent. Held pretty well after its, after its premiere last week. Yeah, that was something I mentioned the other day when I wrote about it. I was surprised how strong its second weekend hold was. We've seen with other recent Disney titles, just 50% off the top immediately. And that isn't the case here. So we'll see whether or not, you know, it turns into a different story next week. But it is at least tending at maybe the fact that its quality is going to help it even more. Yeah, after that reasonable decline, I actually look forward to it hanging around for quite some time and maybe becoming the new yeah Moana or, or uh, Encanto just to a slightly different degree. Uh, also in second from Disney Plus, so uh, but a big drop off from Elemental because it's been here for a couple weeks now is Little Mermaid, 393 million minutes. So yep, just basically dropped a billion minutes from first to second as one does. So otherwise it's not a terrific week for for movies, but uh, we do have some some new uh, new content here. Uh, speaking of, in third, Prime Videos, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, 315 million minutes. This was a theatrical release earlier this year. Guy Ritchie's The Covenant is distributed by MGM, which of course now is Amazon's MGM. This movie has been streaming at least on Prime Video in Canada since June, maybe on Prime Video in the US as well. So it's unclear why suddenly it would appear so high on the charts in September. So I'm very confused about that. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, we saw a return last week from Paramount Plus and Netflix because it showed up on, on Netflix in the middle of September for some reason, 267 million minutes. So that's what kind of movies week it is. I admire the logic of whoever at Netflix decided that it was time to get the rights to the last Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio movie just in time for the new one to come to theaters as people are going to search for Scorsese and DiCaprio at Netflix <laughs> and find The Wolf of Wall Street. And so, hey, let's watch that instead. Let's watch that. Yeah. I love it first sight. We saw last week, 242 million minutes and new in six Spy Kids Armageddon, 236 million minutes. A reboot of the, the Spy Kids series arrived on September 22nd, still written and directed by Robert Rodriguez. So he thinks his franchise still has some life in it. If you had told me ages ago how much life there would be in the Spy Kids franchise, I never would have believed you. But here we are. 
Rule and I were actually talking about this before the show. We thought there was more Spy Kids than there actually was. This is the first movie since way back in like 2011. Uh, but there is an animated series that had two seasons in 2018 from Netflix. I think there was like a spinoff, like a Spy Kids adjacent a couple of years ago that I watched. Let me look at that. I wouldn't be surprised, David, if we were both, you and I, thinking that it was the uh, Shark, Shark yeah. Boy and Lava Girl spinoff, We Can Be Heroes, yes. That's exactly what it is. Because it was from Netflix as well, but apparently, other than the fact that it's directed and written by Robert Rodriguez, it is unrelated to Spy Kids. Yes, I was going to say, wait, that, that's Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Well, that was also Robert Rodriguez, so crossover seriously make it happen all right yeah but that's you know hey, it's a middling number but it's a, a new movie we actually might see it go higher next week with the with the full week uh from prime video million miles away we saw that arrive last week 216 million minutes uh but new in eighth from paramount plus teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem 216 million minutes yes this was a theatrical release in august and oh after like what 45 days went right to streaming and i watched that on paramount plus ninth is moana 214 million minutes of course there's there's the bar as always around 200 million minutes those poor parents just every week just these same kids just watching moana journey of water inspired by moana now open at epcot go see it <laughs> <laughs> And we wrap up movies with The Machine from Netflix. 206 million minutes. This Hell is yeah. Not I have confused him, but Kim and I are passionate about The Machine, aren't we, Kim? Yes, please enlighten me. I'm going to be watching this probably later tonight. David and I will definitely watch this. We enjoyed Burt Kreischer for many, many years. Acquired is still led, of course, by Suits. About 1.8 billion minutes as it just continues its ever gradual decline down, down the chart as people finish it. Uh, but it is eight shows we've seen before because there's two new entries here, which is very curious. Uh, in eighth is Band of Brothers, credited to Max and Netflix, 559 million minutes for 10 episodes. That, of course, is the HBO series about a unit in World War II. Uh, and in ninth is The Pacific, 491 million minutes for 10 episodes, which is you know, basically the Pacific theater version of that, of that story. Both of these arrived on Netflix on September 15th. So here they are with a full week of availability on Netflix. Let's remember that back in August, Ballers, the Dwayne Johnson series, appeared on the Acquired chart two weeks in a row on 8.14 and 8.21. That's despite the fact that it's both on Max and Netflix. This is, at this point, this is Netflix flexing their muscles and telling everyone you don't need to subscribe to max <laughs> if you wait long enough all those max shows will eventually show up at netflix and if warner bros discovery is trying to make a case for why you should be using their uh streaming service at this point they're losing that argument well done zaslov well done if they get harley quinn it's over oh my god uh, but yeah, that's that's all we've got for the ratings this week. We'll be hitting October soon, so time for Hocus Pocus to return to, to the charts, which I'm sure it will. Yeah, and it won't just be that. In fact, we didn't mention box office, but a film that's going to finish in the top five this week is, I am not joking, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. The Hocus Pocus Nightmare Before Christmas one-two punch dominates Halloween at this point. Just dominates. It's not a lot. It had 1.4 million on Friday, but that's how box office works in, in 2023, unfortunately. But that's good enough, yeah, to finish top five for the weekend. Not a lot. The film's 30 years old, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tim. And this week, Green Lights and Cancellations continues to show some signs of life. Netflix renewed their family drama, Sweet Magnolias, for a somewhat unprecedented fourth season. 
it really helps that it's a relatively unknown cast, but until the SAG-AFTRA strike ends, and at this point, it's anybody's guess when that happens, production's not going to go anywhere on this show. And when it returns to the ratings, I will still confuse it with Steel Magnolias. (laughs) (laughs) And there's bad news at Apple TV+, Plus, as it was announced that Jon Stewart's news program, The Problem with Jon Stewart, has been canceled. Well, I don't know if I'd call it canceled. Because they were pretty much about to begin a production on the third season, but then um, some news came out about it. Yeah, I guess Apple found out that the problem with Jon Stewart is uh, Jon Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's Apple, actually. That that may be the case. (laughs) Reports are that Apple was chafing at some of the stories that Stewart wanted to do on AI and China. You don't want to badmouth China when Apple's involved. It does appear that the show wasn't getting that many viewers in the first place. So Apple just ultimately chose to cut bait rather than have to deal any further with Stuart and the these subjects that were making them uncomfortable. It does open the door, though, to questions about corporate interference and journalistic integrity. Yeah, I do feel like it never gained much traction outside of the occasional viral clip, like had the conversation he was having with the guy over like guns or something. But I do kind of hope if Don Stewart wants to continue making show that, you know, someone else can 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 pick it up and say, hey, we, we won't get involved. Do whatever you want. If John Oliver ever wants to take a vacation. There, there you go. He's available. <laughs> and finally, looks like Amazon is happy with Gen V, the spinoff to their ultra-violent superhero show, The Boys, as it's been renewed for a second season. And is somehow even more violent, or at least <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> yes and yes. <laughs> As always, we wrap up the show with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And I would like to take a moment, since we haven't talked about it yet, to discuss Loki Season 2. It is an absolute delight so far. I love everybody on the show. Well, most everybody on the show, anyway. They are having a blast. I hate that we're having to think about what's happened with Jonathan Majors, as he's really, really good in his role, too. We've added Kihui Kwan to the cast, and David and I suspect there's a lot more to his character than what we've seen so far. As always, Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson are having a blast. If you aren't watching it, because maybe you were turned off by some of the other recent Marvel series. Come back to this one. Raul, how about you? Let me tell you what's wrong with the fall of the House of Usher. This is an eight-part miniseries on Netflix from Mike Flanagan, who's been giving us annual horror series on the streamer since 2018's The Haunting of Hill House. And it's all been downhill from there. Given that Flanagan also gave us the Stephen King adaptations Dr. Sleep and Gerald's Game, I'm starting to think that Hill House may have been an outlier. Flanagan reuses his cast from series to series and evidently from movie to movie. Actors like Carla Gugino and Henry Thomas recur in numerous projects, although in the case of House of Usher, Gugino largely lingers around as a literal specter. The star of the series is Bruce Greenwood as Roderick, the patriarch of the Usher family and head of a massive pharmaceutical conglomerate who has, of course, made its fortune on opioids. Usher's children, six of them, have all died. This is no spoiler. It's how the series starts. And each episode tells the tale of their 
their terrible demise. The episodes are each themed on a different Poe story. So yes, we get a reading of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. But even as it's happening, all I can think was how I'd rather be watching the interpretation brought to us by The Simpsons. I suppose in some way, The Simpsons has ruined The Raven for anyone else. And that's just too bad for everyone else. If you can't do it better than Homer, then don't even bother. The horror here ultimately is bland. The characters are terrible, and so you're largely satisfied by their fates. Mark Hamill's appearance as the fearsome and intimidating lawyer of the Usher family is probably the highlight of the series, but that's not really saying much. There just isn't a lot to like about this series. One way you find out each of the characters is terrible is that they each have their own sexual depravities. This one has kinks. That one has multiple partners. He cheats. She likes to watch. So obviously, they're bad, right? So here again, like I did last week, I compare the series to Our Flag Means Death. It took me some time to realize this in Max's Our Flag Means Death, but now I see it and it's so utterly clever. You see, every character in the pirate comedy is in a relationship, but there isn't a single, quote, traditional relationship in the series. They're gay, they're lesbian, they're polyamorous, they're gender neutral. It's also seamless. It's almost invisible. And yet it's at the root of the story as if to suggest that these people just want to be themselves. But to do so, they have to live outside the law. They have to be pirates. In Usher, though, it's less subtle, more blatant. These people like sex, so they must die. The only element of Usher I found intriguing in this whole story is that it's told through the perspective of Roderick, who's beginning to suffer from dementia and couldn't have possibly been present for the each death he tells. He claims he knows what's happened because the ghosts of his children have told him, but without any way to verify, did any of it really happen? Or was it all the delusion of a dying man? It's a clever twist that really doesn't amount to much in the end. It's eight hours I'd rather have spent watching something else. Else. I only stuck with it because I wanted to see how the tale unraveled. But if you want something scary for Halloween, stick to the classics or heck, even watch The Haunting of Hill House. Now, that one at least was good. Okay, Tim, how about you? Uh, I haven't had a lot of time to play it lately, but Magic continues to attempt to expand its audience by just producing more and more cards and sets. And what they've started to do is create sets based on existing IP. And it started out with things like, you know, there's a Dungeons and Dragons based set, which makes sense because it's, you know, a Hasbro or, you know, Wizards of the Coast owned entity. But then, you know, earlier this year, they put out a Lord of the Rings set, which I think was overshadowed by them making a one of one, one ring card that then, you know, drove up the prices of packs and eventually sold for like over $2 million. But they, they just recently came out with a set based on Doctor Who, which I know very little about. I've seen the Christopher Eccleston season and then a handful of things here and there, but I really like what they did here. They put out pre-constructed commander decks, the most popular way to, to play and featuring all the well-known characters from the show. Every single doctor is represented. All the companions are, yes, there are, there are Daleks, there are multiple cards for events that happened in the, uh, in the show. The, the goofiness of the sci-fi just really, really works for me in a way like the Lord of the Rings set didn't. The decks are themselves kind of super complicated to play out of the box. So it's maybe not recommended for the newer players but you know if you are curious about about it and they're just going to keep turning out these uh sets based on ip they've revealed a fallout based set for next year which is which is wild uh and then they just keep producing more and more cards which just you know is for the good and bad of the game but i really do like what they did with the with the doctor who set here it's a lot a lot of fun and i'm looking forward to actually just basing decks based on most of the the doctors 
and the, the artwork on the cards is also really cool. Some of them just don't even seem like artwork. They seem like images from the, the show because, you know, the, the 10th Doctor card actually looks like David Tennant. Ro- Rose Tyler looks like Billy Piper. Uh, even the, the fourth Doctor has the, the classic, you know, Tom Baker look with, with, with the scarf. And yeah, there's even a card called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. So if that doesn't get you in, into this, I, I guess I don't know what will. <laughs> Well, that's very intriguing. David, how about you? Yeah, so since we talked about it, I guess I'll go ahead and mention the fact that we're caught up on Gen V and it is unsettling, I think would be the way I'd describe it. I'm really, really enjoying it, but somebody thought, hey, what if we made their powers even more salacious? What if we made them even more insidious? Like, hey, let's turn date break into a superpower. These aren't necessarily the ideas I would explore, but they're leaning hard into it. And then there's another woman who can use blood as a weapon and a young man's groin really regrets that. And uh, I I don't know what to think about a lot of this. This is an unsettling show in any number of ways, but the core group of characters really aligns well with what we've seen from the boys as a main cast. And so the idea of integrating them down the road really is appealing to me, Um, depending on who survives this because I think we all know that if they do three or four seasons of this, a lot of the cast isn't getting out of this alive. All right. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Be sure to watch for us again next week. 